I'm McKinley. And I'm Jenna, and this is Farming the Future, a Purdue Ag Week podcast. On this week's episode, we are discussing sustainability in agriculture with Michael O'Donnell, the organic and diversified agricultural extension educator at Purdue, and Nick Reinke, who is the Soil Health Services Lead for Truterra, a division of Land All right, well, Michael, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Sure, yeah. Name's Michael O'Donnell. Um, Currently, I wear a couple different hats when it comes to employment and the work that I do. Uh, So one of those is working with Purdue University. And specifically, I work with Dr. Linda Procopy and the Department of Horticulture and Landscape Architecture. And I came on just recently at the start of the year onto a newly funded grant project. Um, It's the USDA Sustainable Ag System Grant Program. And the proposal that was funded, uh, it's a five-year, $10 million grant project, multiple institutions, sort of an integrative project. Uh, And the short title for the the project is Diverse Corn Belt. Hmm. And so we can get into what that's about. But I came onto the project, uh, the, the title of my position is Regenerative Ag Coordinator, Regenerative Agriculture Coordinator. Um, but really it has to do with stakeholder coordination, stakeholder engagement, and then also helping with the extension part of the project. So really acting as kind of a liaison um, to a lot of the people that will be engaging into this multi-year project. Yeah, that's really cool. And then the, 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 other, the other hat that I wear, I actually um, work with a farm that's about, you know, driving, it's about 30 minutes north of the Purdue University West Lafayette campus based in Walkett, Indiana, and it's a 4,100 acre uh, grain operation that in recent years has been transitioning uh, all of its acreage into certified organic production. So uh, the farm had been a mostly a, a conventional corn and, corn and soybean operation with a, a few other crops here and there on, on a limited amount of acreage. But uh, since shifting acreage more aggressively into organic, the, the farm has become much more diversified, raising uh, a lot more crops beyond the, the typical corn and soybean that we see on, on most grain operations in the Corn Belt. And so for those who might not know, can you kind of explain what regenerative ag is and maybe what sort of practices can be involved in this? Sure. And, I, you know, really, I can just kind of speak from my own current thinking about regenerative agriculture, because unlike something like organic agriculture, which has a, at least in the United States, has a specific regulatory definition, regenerative is still, I mean, it's a, it's a fairly new conversation, and there's no set definition like that. There's no set regulatory definition. A lot of people, there's kind of a debate, like, should we define regenerative agriculture or shouldn't we? You know, there are some, there are some challenges facing the organic industry just because of uh, how it is defined on a regulatory standpoint. And some people are concerned that it's, you know, oh, is it, you know, is it becoming watered down? Is it becoming corrupted, et cetera? And so some people are, are nervous. Oh, let's not define regenerative agriculture. So for me, I can speak kind of, you know, my views about what regenerative agriculture is. Um, And to be honest, it's kind of an ever-evolving definition. But for me right now, regenerative agriculture 
I, I look at it not as some end point, like an end goal, mm -hmm. like you are regenerative when your farm looks like this, yeah. yeah, right? Like it's some sort of checklist or like defined end point. It's more of a process. Um, and to me, it's a process of continuous improvement. So you never reach some set end goal. You're always trying to improve how your farm or even your, say it's a food business or an agricultural business um, is always improving in this regenerative manner. And to me, ultimately, in order for a farm to be walking down this path, what I call like a journey in regenerative agriculture, it ultimately becomes about self-improvement. Because if we're not shifting our mindset about how we relate to our farm, how we think about farming, and all the pieces that go with that, and how that farm interacts within the community and within the industry, and how our farm, how our how our family dynamic plays out within that farm, how we relate to other members within the farming community, all these ways that we relate to the farm and that farm relates to ourselves, it, it's sort of this continuous self improvement process, and I think shifting the way that we look at it is an ongoing process. And so I, I guess expanding on that, much of the way that we've related or, or that agriculture has gone over the last several decades, probably since the, the 50s or 60s, is very much an industrial type of mindset, an industrial approach to production. It's farms have become very standardized and focused and with that have become quite efficient. Um, in terms of, you know, resources that we put in relative to production that we get out. But we've seen farms simplify from highly diversified, you know, integrated crop and livestock operations to larger scale, simplified to just corn and beans, for instance. And that's very much based on kind of an industrial mindset where we have inputs in to the system, outputs out rather than looking potentially at how things can cycle uh, in a system. And I think generally when you look at regenerative approaches, regenerative principles, we're shifting from this more industrial input output type of model to looking at the farm from more of a systems level. So we could talk about ag agroecological systems a lot of people look at ecology as sort of a framework for how we shift into regenerative farming. And how that manifests on a given farm is going to look different based on, you know, the kind of the ecotype or the region that that farm sits within, what's its topography, its soils, its climate, what's the natural like native ecosystems look like? Does it sit somewhere where there used to be prairie or savanna or woodlands? And what can we learn from that type of natural ecosystem to inform how our farm farm might function to better mimic natural systems. So we're shifting again from this sort of, you know, the farm is more of a mechanistic type of thing that we look at to, you know, a, a dynamic living system that we're, that we're managing, that we're playing a role in managing. So if that's not vague enough for you, <laughs> I don't know how else to put it, but I, I really think that trying to put a, a really clear define like this is regenerative ag becomes problematic because we really need to come back to context of place of where a farm sits, who is the individual that's that's managing that farm, what's their current financial situation with the farm, how do they relate within the and sit within the community, 
there's just so many factors that are going to inform how that farm can start to move in a more regenerative path. Absolutely. That makes a lot of sense kind of with the instead of a one size fits all kind of approach, kind of taking the context into it. And so would you mind maybe talking more about your project and what you're looking at with diversifying the corn belt? Yeah, and this this project's early days. Um, as I mentioned, we, we call it diverse corn belt. Right now, people do want to keep up with um, the project as we start to roll some things out. They can find, they can at least find us on Twitter. If I think it's just at diverse corn belt. We'll be providing updates there. But um, yeah, so the project has a lot of different components to it. It's pretty ambitious in the work that we're proposing. And in essence, it's this, it's this idea of we in the Corn Belt, we have a system that, that for a lot of reasons has become very much dominated by corn and soybean production. A lot of the, the mechanisms in place, whether from a policy standpoint or how the industry has developed, it's kind of a self-perpetuating system and it's dominated by corn soybean that then feeds into other parts of the agriculture industry, whether that's ethanol, the livestock industry, everything's all the rations for, you know, feeding poultry, for feeding hogs. It's all based around a corn soybean ration, even trying to like, you know, work with an integrator, whether it's feeding hogs or poultry to include uh, grains outside of corn and soybean becomes problematic. Everything's sort of built within that paradigm. And, you know, some recent events like, like COVID exposed some of the vulnerabilities of a system like that, uh, where we saw some hiccups in production and distribution of food. Um, we see some vulnerabilities from uh, extreme weather events from climate change um, and other factors that would suggest, hey, we need to we need to be thinking more seriously about shifting to more resilient systems of production that can handle shocks like from extreme weather events and market disruptions and be more flexible and adaptive. And so generally when we, we think about that, we think about more diverse systems. You look at ecology, you talk about resilient ecosystems, we tend to think of diversity being key to, to that resilience. And so basically this project is about exploring what does a more diversified and resilient corn belt agriculture look like. So we say corn belt, this project is specifically looking at the I states, Iowa, Illinois, and Indiana. And so we wanna explore this, this vision and pathway to a more diversified agriculture in a number of ways. And one of them is through engaging with stakeholders, different agricultural stakeholders, farmers being uh, a priority or primary group of stakeholders that we want to work with, but then others as well, you know, crop consultants, agronomists, lenders, ag lenders, uh, crop insurance folks, buyers, processors, landowners, really anyone across the, the ag supply chain and industry, but really farmers are our main focus. And so one part of the project is engaging stakeholders directly in focus group discussions, which will become actually an ongoing dialogue with these stakeholders throughout the entire life of this project. And again, it's, it's a five-year project. So we're going to be, we're developing a, a kind of a focus group process to recruit people to be a part of this, this project for the entire time. And it'll be kind of an ongoing dialogue of exploring, you know, what are the barriers uh, or motivations 
um, obstacles, et cetera, to diversifying at the farm level, the market level, the community, the, the whole landscape level. And what does that look like? How does it manifest? You know, we could talk about specific diversification practices like integrating small grains and other rotational crops, integrating perennial forages and bioenergy crops, getting livestock back onto the landscape and integrated crop livestock systems. So having, you know, cattle that are grazing on cover crops and perennial forages in rotation with our, our grain crops, our cash crops adding more horticultural crops to the landscape. So, you know, we look at California, which is a center of our specialty crop, horticultural crop production. There are some vulnerabilities there with, with water resources. So to get a more resilient system that isn't potentially disrupted by water shortages or other things that could impact that highly concentrated production in the valleys in California, you know, can we look at bringing some of the more specialty crop back to the Midwest, back to the Corn Belt? So we want to explore those things with these stakeholder groups. And uh, with that, we're also going to be recruiting farms uh, throughout the I-States, all different types of farms, conventional corn, soybean to those that are highly diversified already and sampling biophysical data from these farms. So soils data, water data, insect diversity, all this type of information over four years of this project so that we can better characterize farms based on their level of diversification and what kind of outcomes from a biophysical standpoint and an economic standpoint that we can, we can expect or anticipate. Um, we're gonna be surveying people in the you know, downstream in terms of buyers, processors, and so forth to understand where the opportunity is there to diversify, what are the challenges, um, doing case studies of places where we've already seen diversification so that we can learn from those. There's gonna be a modeling component. So a lot of the information from the focus groups, we're also gonna be doing surveys of farmers and different people, di different stakeholders. A lot of information from there is gonna go into uh, different sets of models to look at economics, land use change, uh, water quality in different watersheds, uh, air quality, greenhouse gas emissions. So a whole slew of different you know, parameters and ways that we can characterize and look at agricultural systems from more of a landscape level. So as we shift from our current system into a more diversified system that we develop through this visioning process, through these models, what can we expect outcome-wise um, across the landscape as it becomes more diversified? So, um, you know, can we see a reduction in nutrient pollution in our waterways, things like that, so we can better quantify that information and, and see how that could evolve over time. And then there will be an extension component. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll be engaging with farmers and other agricultural you know, stakeholders, whether it's reaching out to lenders, how do they restructure, you know, how do they approach lending to a farm that's more diversified, sort of outside of their standard model for corn and soybean um, operations. So we'll be, we'll be exploring that. Um, you know, how do we get this information out and engage with, with farmers on this topic of diversification? And then there are, lastly, there's an education component where we'll be developing curriculum for high school and undergraduate students on all of these topics about diversification in agriculture. That's actually very cool. And, you know, just the far-reaching effects, you know, seeing where it can all be impacted, especially in terms of education, because 
you know, I didn't learn much about agriculture in high school, if anything, really besides maybe in some biology courses. So that's, that's very cool. And I hope it all goes well, because I think the impacts of that can be very huge for agriculture as a whole. And so kind of one last question for you, obviously regeneration and sustainability go hand in hand either with production of resources, using resources in a more contextualized manner. Where do you hope to see ag go in like terms of sustainability and regenerative ag? What do you hope to see for the future of that? Hmm, that's a good question. You know, I, I guess for me, I, I like to bring things back to sort of my level, selfishly or not, rather than thinking like, okay, what does this look like across of the Corn Belt? Um, I like to think more of like, what would I want this to look like? And, and I've had a number of different farming experiences. I, I worked on a, a, a kind of a medium scale certified organic vegetable operation in Texas. I've worked on a, a vertically integrated small family farm in West Central Indiana that had its own state inspected slaughter facility and retail butcher shops and and then uh, had my own small family farm doing market farming raising vegetables using organic practices and then now find myself working with this this large certified organic grain farm and uh, you know through those experiences just seeing different agricultural landscapes and how those farms interact you know within the community and sort of how they sit on the landscape, you know, I, I could relate it back to each one of those experiences, but I guess given the farm that I currently work with, most of the uh, fields that we operate on are in White County. If you've ever driven on, if you, if you drive north on Interstate 65 towards Chicago, it's kind of in that area where all the wind turbines are, mm -hmm. right? Both sides of the interstate everywhere, it's, it's flat, it's highly productive, probably some of the most productive soils, you know, on the planet. And when you look across that landscape, it's corn, soybeans, and wind turbines, right? Uh, very few trees, not much diversity, right? You hardly ever see a field of wheat. The only time you see wheat is typically around where there's some confinement hog operations. It becomes a management strategy to get manure incorporated in their, their rotation on fields. But it's, it's, it's a very simplified landscape. There's, there's hardly any refuge you know, for, for other wildlife. And to me, it's, it's not, you know, and it's, it's nothing against the system that's developed there. But for me personally, living on that landscape to me feels somewhat sort of like a void at times, uh, especially in the winter when there's, there's no green stuff out there and um, it's just crop residue generally. And to me, as, as this farm that I work with has been shifting to more diverse set of crops, more diverse cover crops, where we generally have something on a field growing and changing year to year at all, right, all the time. Um, and this sort of gets to some of the, the principles of regenerative ag. And that's one thing I didn't talk about earlier. Generally in the regenerative ag space, there's these principles that's um, keep, keep the ground covered, have a root in the soil 24 seven all the time. Minimize disturbance, that's generally about soil disturbance, but it could also mean chemical or pesticide disturbance. Another one that people throw out is like livestock integration and then also context. You know, you got to take into consideration the specific context. So 
So on this farm, we're trying to have something out there on the field all the time and, and with diversity, right? So we're doing more solid seeded crops and winter annual crops, not just corn and soybeans. So we're growing wheat and oats and barley and rye, and we've done some canola and rapeseed, sunflower, buckwheat, peas. We raise alfalfa and clover cover crops and cereal rye cover crops. And, you know, so there's always a mix of crops coming and going. There's stuff coming out of spring that's greening up before anything else on the landscape. Um, there's these solid seeded crops with clover underneath. And when you go out in these fields, they become in essence a refuge for wildlife within a landscape that generally speaking elsewhere is just corn and soybeans under uh, chemical management. And so there's just, there's, there's just a flourishing of life on the farm. But just to see sort of this, this flourishing of life on, on these farms um, in an otherwise somewhat simplified and standardized landscape, to me, kind of gives hope. And if more farms within a given region and watershed shift towards more diversification, I think we're going to see just a tremendous flourishing uh, of life that, to me, makes for a much more attractive place to live and make a home. So I like to tie it back to, to that aspect. And so I just hope that, you know, the, the type of thing that the farm I'm working with can have ripple out effects and we start to see that more generally across the landscape. Yeah, that's awesome. And thank you so much for talking to us and taking some time out of your day. We really appreciate it. And I know I learned a lot from this, so thank you. Thank you very cool. much. Next up, we'll be talking to Nick. All right, hi Nick, thanks so much for joining me today. Um, could you just tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Sure, yeah, uh, my name is Nick Renke. I am the Soil Health Services Lead at Truterra. Uh, Truterra is the sustainability business at Land O'Lakes. So to give a little context to that, Land O'Lakes is a 100-year-old farmer-owned cooperative system. Um, a lot of the world knows the butter, it seems like, but a lot more than dairy cooperative. So we have uh, extensive businesses ranging from the dairy co-op that we know to Winfield United on the crop inputs side of things, uh, where they work through a system of ag cooperatives across the country, about 1,000 ag cooperatives, uh, reaching roughly 50% of the harvested acres in the United States. And we have Purina on the animal feed side of things. Uh, and then we've got Truterra. So we've been around for about six years and just recently uh, got into kind of the carbon marketplace, which is a lot of news, but we work much more broadly than that in soil health. And that's kind of my job is just helping to stand up those programs and support our farmers and our member owners. Yeah, that's awesome. Could you maybe talk a little bit about the programs that you've worked on or dealt with? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so there's a, there's a lot of large companies setting environmental goals. We see a lot of news on that. It seems like every day there's a new a new statement or a new goal. Um, so a lot of the partners that we work with are companies that have ag supply chains, buying things like corn and wheat and stuff like that that goes ultimately into their end products. So when they set one of these big climate commitments, they have to figure out what they're going to do with their ag supply chain. And that's oftentimes a large share of their footprint. So they look at an entity like Truterra and Land O'Lakes and they say, hey, we need help. Like we don't work directly with farmers, right? We're a CPG that's buying a commodity, um, but we want to support farmers in adopting climate smart practices, um, improving their profitability and their and their environmental footprint ultimately. So we work with those partners. We help them sort of gather data, understand what's happening on the farm. But we also run programs with farmers to help them adopt practices like 
reductions in tillage, improved nutrient management, things like that. And then we can model and measure the environmental outcomes. So lots and lots of projects we can go into there. Happy to jump in any detail, but we're also in the, in the market for uh, carbon offsets. So beyond the broader environmental impacts of farming, we, we have transacted uh, a set of carbon offsets with Microsoft as one of our key buyers. Um, and it's been a really great process to get farmers paid ultimately for, for their good work. Yeah, that's kind of what I like so much about it is that it's rewarding on, you know, both ends for the environment and um, for the farmers. And so what do you think sustainability looks like, especially for a big ag company such as Land O'Lakes? Yeah, that's that's a good one. And this is a massive enterprise, right? As I just mentioned, it's pretty interesting, uh, even in the ag space on its own. So I've gotten a kick out of working here because I come from a family farm back in North Dakota. So I really appreciate Land O'Lakes actually taking it all the way back up to the farm. So for a company like Land O'Lakes, um, with that broad reach, you know, going all the way from ag inputs to animal feed to the actual animal and, uh, you know, animal protein production through the dairy side um, to consumer facing, we really kind of, we span the entire value chain and we need to deal with the entire value chain, right? So sustainability for us, it's, it's the sustainability of our farming operations. They need to be profitable into the future. Uh, definitely challenges around uh, profitability on farm always. It's always a low margin business. So we're always thinking about ways that we can support them, but it's also got to be environmentally sustainable. So for Land O'Lakes, you know, we've got the consumer facing side of things where consumers are increasingly aware of the impact of the products that they buy and they want to know where that's coming from. So we need to be transparent with the way that we produce our goods. Um, and help consumers understand the way that we're supporting farmers in, in being more sustainable and reducing environmental impact. But then on top of that, we have large corporate partners as well. Um, and those corporate partners are kind of looking for the same thing because their customers and their investors are looking for that mm -hmm. too. So we're, we're doing a lot of work to get a good understanding of what our environmental footprint is as an enterprise and then how we support farmers in, in making an impact on that. And ultimately, that's where TrueTerra comes in. Uh, Land O'Lakes is pretty forward thinking where they spun up an entire independent business unit specifically dedicated to sustainability. So a lot of companies have a sustainability department, but Land O'Lakes has TruTerra, who's actually a service provider in the industry, not just for Land O'Lakes supply chain, but ultimately for the whole of agriculture. We work with plenty of farmers that are outside of our supply chain that are helping other customers downstream. So Land O'Lakes as a company is pretty unique because they're having an outsized impact that goes mm -hmm. beyond their own their own direct value chain. Yeah, that's awesome. And um, what role do you see or even hope to see for corporations, um, especially as the world continues to focus more on sustainability and corporate responsibility? That's a great question. Um, yeah, I, I, I think the private market has to take a major role here, right? This mm -hmm. can't be all, all government funded. We need regulation, we need public funding for this, absolutely. There's always a role for folks like the USDA to play in supporting this. Um, but at the end of the day, there's just, we need, we need rapid investment at a massive scale to get the kind of work done that we need to um, in the face of a changing climate. So from a corporation side of things, it's been great to see sort of the, the investor side of this equation where large institutional investors, so the folks that are sort of dictating the stock price, if you will, of these uh, large companies, they're now treating it as a requirement, an expectation of their investment dollars that companies have at least a plan to address mm -hmm. their share of 
climate impact. So it's not just a consumer facing thing, but now these companies, um, you know, you, you look at the stock price, that's a, that's a material impact to the company bottom line and company leadership. And that really gets things moving. So that's been great to see that investor activism because we see corporates that are really taking material action. You know, it's not just mm -hmm. a sustainability webpage on the website anymore. They're actually working with us and investing real dollars in the farms that they, that they source from. And that's a pretty exciting evolution that's really only happened in the last couple of years in a really wow, material yeah. way. Yeah. Are there any sort of projects that you kind of hope to see going forward? Yeah. I mean, I, I really like connecting farmers in a real way, right? Mm -hmm. So some of this stuff, it can be kind of a loose, sure, we supported this region of agriculture or whatever, but I, I really like those projects where a company says, okay, we know we're sourcing from this group of farmers in this area, and mm -hmm. we're going to deploy some real resources. So one of the things that we've had the opportunity to do at Trutera is work with uh, some different sort of nonprofits and NGOs alongside corporate partners and bring together funding and support to deploy folks that we call conservation agronomists, right? So a lot of our like ag retail and cooperative network, they have the sales agronomists who farmers work with every day to buy their seed and their crop nutrients and things like that. Um, but we're able to, through this unique partnership, put these conservation agronomists right alongside the sales agronomist. So now if a farmer wants to plant a cover crop, not every agronomist is experienced in mm -hmm. cover cropping and advanced tillage practices and that kind of thing. So now we've got these people that are trained specifically in that, that can go and support. And that's supported by corporate partners who actually want to make a difference. And there's not a super direct claim that they can put on their site mm -hmm. for that. It's they want to do something for real and they're starting to do it. Yeah, that's awesome. I it's it's kind of interesting to see the overlap of, you know, all these different sectors and spaces and people um, to come together for something like this. It's something that, you know, I really care a lot about, something that I, you know, want to do work in someday. But it's it's really cool to see that and hear about that. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. And then, you know, we're seeing other things advance, like just the potential, you know, the market's just getting there, but the potential for grain premiums, right? If, if you're producing a more sustainable grain, I think that's coming in the near future. But what's already here today is companies that are willing to pay at least on the acre for improved environmental impacts. So that's something yeah. that gets me excited. Farmers are actually getting paid for doing good work like that. Yeah. You can't beat it. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, well, thank you so much. That was all the questions I had. I don't know if you had anything else you wanted to add, but um, I really appreciate you coming on here today. Yeah, yeah, no, more than happy to. I just love that people are entering into this conversation. And at the end of the day, if we have a financial mechanism that rewards good work and environmental impacts, like that's one of the best things that we could accomplish. So absolutely. Thanks again, Michael and Nick. Tune in next Wednesday for a new episode of Farming the Future by Purdue Ag Week Task Force.